2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With the beautiful spring weather and our city in bloom, it's great to be outdoors now. Should you visit Fernbank Museum's immersive woodlands, you can see some amazing larger than life photographs. Of insects. Later this hour, we'll hear about the exhibition Microsculpture The Insect Portraits of Levon Biss on view now in Fernbank's Nature Gallery. A new online exhibition from MODA, the Museum of Design Atlanta, explores how visual art and design enhance our relationship with music. That show is titled The Future Happened, designing the future of music. First, an artist who looks to the sky for inspiration. The south of France meets the southeastern United States in paintings of Rachel Evans Grant. Clouds over landscapes are a recurring theme in her work on view now in the exhibition, Natural Engagement, Where Earth Meets Sky, in the Circle Gallery at the UGA College of Environment and Design, Jackson Street Building in Athens. The artist joins us now via Zoom. Rachel Evans-Grant, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. How long did you work on the paintings in this exhibition?
1: This exhibition features work from the last five years. Uh, so there are actually about 40 paintings on display uh, that I've been working on over the course of my time uh, in Atlanta working as an artist.
2: And what inspired you to create paintings of clouds?
1: Well, well, I've always been a lover of nature and enjoyed paint painting outside. When I was a, a university student earning my Master of Fine Art in Painting, I was able to study in the south of France, where many great landscape painters, impressionists and post-impressionists created their work. And it really gave me a love for plein air painting, which means painting in the open air. Uh, and I noticed something interesting happening in my work that I, I was landscape painting, but started really focusing on the clouds just because I was so intrigued by the the physical act of capturing them on canvas because they are so transient in nature. You can't capture a cloud exactly as it is because it's always moving. So that became a really interesting challenge for me.
2: How glorious to spend a summer in the south of France. I can imagine the inspiration that must have provided. Was the lavender in bloom? Yes, I
1: did get to see the lavender in bloom.
2: Oh, I I can smell it now. Well, I was hoping you'd talk about the title of your exhibition, natural engagement and the signature piece of the same name
1: Sure. The exhibition is on display, as you mentioned, in the University of Georgia College of Environment and Design Circle Gallery. And this is a building where students are studying landscape architecture, urban planning and design, historic preservation, and environmental design and planning. So it's very important to the curators of the space that the artwork on display relates to the programs of study there as inspiration for their students. So when I was choosing the work to go into the exhibition and choosing a title for the show, I wanted to make sure that the students really understood the art of landscape painting, since they're not actually art students, um, who would be engaging with the work every day. And I wanted to really speak to the mission of that college at the university. And the signature piece, Natural Engagement, is a beautiful, large cumulonimbus cloud. And often in my paintings, I don't include the land these days just because I'm so intrigued by the sky. However, in this piece, I did decide to paint the land so you'll see trees um, and a few light poles to give the cloud scale. I was actually painting from a photograph in this instance, which I do um, when I'm creating extra large work. This piece is about four feet tall. By six feet wide. So, very difficult to, to paint that plein air out in the field. So, um, I created this in my studio. And it is, I think, a, a great signature piece for the exhibition because you can see lots of brush strokes and paint drips. It is an impression of a moment in time where a cloud was especially striking.
2: Mm. Did you study nephrology or do research on the different types of clouds?
1: I would love to say that I'm an expert, but I'm, I'm more of a, a fan of clouds, so I, I do enjoy studying. Also, my, my father is a commercial pilot, so he teaches me a lot about weather patterns that I find useful in my art making.
2: You know, my first airplane trip was to New York when I was 12 years old. And what delighted me most of all was seeing the clouds and the puffiness of them, how I felt I was in the midst of cotton or cotton candy. I could see we're having a parent who's a pilot would come in very helpful here with your work.
1: Absolutely, Lois. I honestly can't even remember my first flight because I've been flying since a very young age. There's definitely a childlike wonder um, that you feel as an adult when you're flying and you go above the clouds or even through a cloud. And that's something that I capture in a series that's on display in the exhibition called Ariel. Um, and they're all paintings that are views from above the clouds looking down on the earth.
2: For the online artist event you did with the UGA College of Environment and Design, you talked about your painting process in plan air, going out into the field, bringing your canvases and supplies. I wonder, do you always return to the same place or do you vary the location?
1: My locations are varied. Um, there are certainly some favorite spots. That I are my go tos. However, I've actually planned trips just to plein air paint throughout the southeast. So I did a week on the Blue Ridge Parkway, driving from Virginia um, into the Carolinas and stopping and painting along the way. I like to go to the coast. You can find beautiful cloud formations over the ocean. Um, so that's one of my favorite places to plein air paint. So I do um, have those favorite spots around Atlanta, but I like to travel as well to spaces that I know I can capture beautiful cloudscapes and places that have what I call big sky, which are great views of the open sky. I'm I'm thinking
2: about how much of a challenge it must be to deal with the changing light quality. Do you return to a space at the same time of day? Because... It is so transient.
1: That's correct. Yes. So I would try to return at the same time of day. And also photos are are an important part of my process. Um, I do paint plein air, but I'll often capture photographs so that if I do need to finish it up in the studio, I have that option available. And also from time to time, I will create a painting that's inspired by a current event. So I may be using um, news photography or a screen grab from a video. Plein air painting is always my first love and uh, I think the most important part of my art practice. But I'm not opposed to using photography for reference as well.
2: Observing clouds brings back childhood memories, not only of my first airplane flight, but even earlier of being outdoors, laying down on the grass, staring at the sky to find different faces or animals in the cloud formations. Rachel, do you include any hidden gems in your paintings?
1: That's a great question. Occasionally, I will create something that um, may be visually symbolic for me just to see if others can find it. However, I noticed that um, lots of people who view my work often find things themselves that I didn't see. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things about being inspired by the impressionist and post-impressionist and abstract painters is that you do create work that is very open to interpretation, just like those clouds that you mentioned um, and playing those games when you're a young person um, that I, I really am intrigued and delighted when when people see interesting things in my clouds.
2: I'm thinking of a painter you must admire, Claude Monet, and how he painted haystacks at different times of year so that there would be the different light quality of the season and the, the tilt of the earth toward the sun. Do you employ That technique as well. Same subject, different season.
1: Lois, you must be a a mind reader or a fortune teller because actually for 2021, that's the newest series that I've started on. I've recently moved and I've recently become a mom. And so I feel like um, even maybe it's because during the pandemic, we've been pretty much homebound um, and really had a chance to... Observe the natural world in a new way and appreciate my natural surroundings at home and the changing of the seasons. So that's the newest uh, series that I've beginning. It's is a series based on the seasons. So I've done um, some winter work and now I'm I'm delighted to be painting spring and the new awakening of of our city. So that's that's actually my newest body of work.
2: Oh, I am thrilled. First of all, though, congratulations. How old is this little person?
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. She's six months old now.
2: Oh, well, no doubt she will be painting soon. The reason I asked about the haystacks, again, this is turning out to be such a personal exchange. I grew up in Chicago and was taken to the Art Institute of Chicago at a very young age and continued to go on my own when I could travel downtown. I learned about appreciating the seasons and, like, just from looking at those Monet paintings. So, you see, you are teaching the viewer as well.
1: And those, I have seen those paintings in person as well. And they certainly are fascinating. And one thing that, that I try to do in my work as well is study color. And I think that Monet is a true master of um, utilizing color in a, such a sophisticated way to give you that impression of a time of day and light or a certain season. Um, and that's certainly something that, that I try to do in my work as well.
2: Well, actually, when I asked you about the different types of clouds, I meant to ask, what determines your choice of colors?
1: That's a great question. So I choose color, not only based on what I see, but on what I feel. And it's a difficult thing to describe. I think that many artists or or creatives or musicians could probably relate to this. But uh, when I look at the sky or a, a landscape in front of me, I not only see the greens and the blues, but I can imagine what colors, Uh, could be mixed in paint to go in to create that green or that blue, because often it'll be not just blue and yellow to create uh, a green grass, but perhaps a a dash of red or some purple that you would have to mix in to create just the right green. So I try to show some of those colors uh, in my paintings. Um, So it's not just an exact copy, but I try to capture the impression of the space, if that makes sense. It's, It's difficult to describe, but I think... You know, when it goes on canvas, your eyes can visually mix the color and it, and it creates something that's more interesting to look at um, and really a beautiful impression of the scene.
2: No, it is easy to understand what you explained and an interesting window into your process. In 2017, the Georgia Dome was imploded to make room for building the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Were you there to witness the implosion?
1: I was. I watched from afar, um, so I wasn't as close as, as I know some people got. But I did um, wake up early and got my tripod and my camera and knew that this is something that I wanted to paint. I made sure to capture some photographs to work from later um, to create my implosion series.
2: Would you describe your painting and its reference to that day?
1: Absolutely. So um, the implosion happened, I believe it was right around 7am, if my memory serves me, um, right at sunrise and it was a beautiful, clear morning. Um, So when the implosion happened, of course, the building folded in on itself and created this large cloud of debris and smoke. Um, And because it was at sunrise, the cloud was a beautiful pink and orange because it was reflecting that sunrise light. Um, I thought it was a really interesting event in our city and also was intrigued by the idea of not just a natural cloud, but a man-made cloud. Um, And an implosion um, was interesting to me because so often we see clouds of smoke as something that... is dangerous or uh, sad if it's you know created by an accident or perhaps a fire, um, but this was was something intentional and you know making way for for a new space or maybe a symbol of progress to some. So I wanted to to show that through my paintings, but I I think that the light was the most interesting thing about the implosion and, and the cloud. So I was able to paint a beautiful pink cloud um, and created a series based on. The experience of watching that implosion at sunrise.
2: And your launch series?
1: The launch series is the most recent that I've created that's on display at Circle Gallery. Um, and this is the launch of SpaceX and NASA flights during the pandemic. Um, as I mentioned before, I was very homebound um, during the pandemic, as most of us were. And I found the news stories about space exploration to be very intriguing. It was interesting while I was kind of stuck at home to see the world and out being left and outer space being explored um, and rockets being launched. So I saw this as a sign of progress and optimism. So I decided that I wanted to see if I could capture those clouds that are created during the launch on Canvas um, and did a series based, based on seeing those news stories.
2: Rachel, I'm intrigued because the beauty you describe about the light quality at dawn for the Georgia Dome implosion, removes anything sinister that could be associated with that. And similarly, with rockets and clouds that might be formed from the fire that's released, mushroom clouds come to mind and... and not that's about as sinister as it gets, but you find beauty in these unnatural, dare I say? It would are they unnatural clouds? I would say man-made, perhaps, or human-made. I try
1: to choose carefully my subject matter. Because it's important to me to create work that you would want to live with in your home, or when you visit an art gallery, or you know, in your business. Because um, I do, I do think about where my art goes, and, and it's kind of life after my studio. Uh, and it's important to me that I put beautiful and optimistic work out into the world. So um, I, I do, I am inspired by carnival and news, but I, I choose not to portray clouds that may be linked to something that I would consider to be too sad or too uh, non-optimistic.
2: Regarding the environment, what message do you hope viewers take away from your paintings?
1: Well, Earth Day is coming up, April 22nd, so it's right around the corner. And while my work doesn't necessarily um, have a call to action uh, for environmentalism that's that's maybe direct and, and right front and center, I think that it does speak to the fact that we should be preserving our earth and the beauty of nature. Um, we all can do our part uh, to preserve this natural world for our children and our children's children so that painters and artists can be inspired by landscape for years and years to come. Rachel,
2: this has been very interesting, and I admire your paintings. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Artist Rachel Evans Grant, her exhibition, Natural Engagement, Where Earth Meets Sky is on view through April 15th in the Circle Gallery at the UGA College of Environment and Design. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Judith Pishnery is the executive director of the Atlanta Photography Group. I spoke with her in January about their online exhibition, Director's Cut. She talked about how photography can relieve stress.
3: Pretty much nowadays, although being a professional photographer myself and a professional educator, it's sometimes a challenge for me to say like, well, pretty much anybody with a decent smartphone can take great pictures and they really can. And that really has made photography kind of the art of the people. They're able to do that. And a lot of people use it as... Reflection, meditation, um, and I even had somebody in one of my classes last year that, on her her daily pandemic walks, was really just using photography with her smartphone as a stress relief, as you know, as a meditative moment. And her photographs really revealed that. And I really think people have been doing that, as well as then sharing their works across. A variety of online platforms from Instagram and Facebook and other social media. And with that, I think people have felt not so alone. They've seen that other people are going through the same things they are. So I really do think it has some therapeutic aspects from everybody being able to make photographs as well as share them and share their experience and not feel that they're the only one going through this.
2: So it's not just self-expression in this instance, it has also meant connection with others.
3: Absolutely. And and with I really do have to thank Zoom for creating a really fabulous platform because I keep thinking about had had we been going through this even five years ago. We wouldn't have had the same connection when we truly would have been isolated, but Zoom has been able to make having online meetings and online events, um, connecting with people across the city or across the country possible. And even though we may not be able to see them in person, we're able to see somebody and we're able to connect with them and, and be able to chat with them and share, share our own experiences.
2: Judith Pishneri is the executive director of the Atlanta Photography Group. You can view their online exhibition, Director's Cut, on their website. Levon Biss is an acclaimed photographer whose subjects include director Quentin Tarantino, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. And the greatest sprinter in the world, Hussein Bolt, his latest exhibition has subjects infinitesimally smaller in size and reputation. Micro the insect portraits of Levon Bis, is on view at Fernbank Museum of Natural History. Mr. Biz joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights.
4: Hello there, how are you?
2: Very well, thanks. Why did you want to photograph Bucks?
4: For me, it was as simple as I was looking for a new challenge. I had been photographing humans for the best part of 20 years in various guises, whether they were sports stars or, or movie stars, but then after a while, I was kind of getting a bit bored with that style of photography and that genre of photography. And I was looking for another way to exercise my brain. Hmm. And uh, it came about actually via my son who was around eight years old at the time. And I, I was looking for these, you know, new projects. I had these big epic journeys in my head of, you know, what I could do, but he actually came up to the studio one day and he'd found a small ground beetle in the backyard. And we looked at it under a microscope um, and I was just amazed at what I saw and that's where it all began, really. It's, um, I photographed the first image for him from that one we found in the garden and that took me approximately eight months and, uh, and it's, it's moved on from there.
2: Oh, wow. Now, i delighted in watching your TED Talk of 2017 and in that, talk, you said that sometimes you wished you had the eyes of a child in order to look at the world with that wide-eyed wonder. Clearly, having your own children has helped you look at subjects with that innocent curiosity. Have your children continued to inspire your photography, and in particular, your nature photography?
4: I wouldn't necessarily say just my children. My children certainly do inspire me on a daily basis with their sort of enthusiasm for life, shall we say. But I think it's, having seen the exhibition go live for a number of years, and we've toured it all over Europe and the Middle East and America, it's actually the reaction of the children at the exhibitions when they see these giant three-metre photographs of of insects that that inspires me because you know there's always going to be a chance that they could be scared about these these creatures but they're not they're they're fascinated in fact all they want to do is touch these prints Mm -hmm. And 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 I like that fact I like the fact that children are curious by nature and you know and they're learning all the time I think as we get older our our brains tend to soak up less information maybe we get kind of full i'm not sure but children they they they're always curious they're always trying to find out how things work or what things look like and you know and i and i find that inspirational and i wish i could stay like that as long as i can
2: when your son brought you the ground beetle was it in a jar was it in his
4: hand how did he present it oh very much in his hand <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So um, it was a, a time of year. It was in spring, and so they they come out, and you know every now and again, they one of them, one of them will die, and you'll you'll see these beetles all around the backyard, or on the road, or pavement. And um, it was one of those. They're, it's a common species, and you see them quite a lot. So yeah, he 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 brought up this dead insect for us to have a look at because it was green and it was kind of metallic in appearance, and so. And that's why we looked at it under a microscope. It was his microscope, actually. We bought him a small science kit for Christmas. And uh, it was under that that we looked at it. And uh, so uh, that's how it started.
2: So the ground beetle was dead.
4: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Because you can't ask an insect to pose.
4: No, not for eight months, no.
2: (laughs) Would you tell us then
4: how you
2: create
4: these images um it's a long process, um, and it they, needs quite a lot of patience. Basically, each image is, is created from around eight thousand separate photographs, sometimes up to ten thousand or more. Essentially, what I do, I use microscope lenses on the end of my of, end of tube lenses. I, I basically essentially I built a, a rudimentary microscope that bolts onto my camera, and I place that onto a rail that I move forward about seven microns in between each picture. That's about one-seventh or one-tenth width of a human hair. And basically what it does, because when you photograph at very high magnifications, you get something called a shallow depth of field, which means there's very little in in the photograph that's in focus. So you have to take lots and lots of photographs, each with a tiny slither of focus to, to achieve... You know, full focus in the final image. So the camera goes on a rail, I program the start focal point and the end focal point, and then it will take a picture, move forward, seven microns, take another picture, move forward, and so on. And so it gives you a big stack of images, which I think then can squash together, only taking out the bits that are in focus, and that gives you one image that is fully focused from front to back. But but the way I work is, I'll, I'll split that insect up into maybe twenty-five different sections, and I'll I'll, fo- I'll I'll photograph it separately. For example, I'll just photograph the eye of an insect, but I'll light it to make that eye look as beautiful as you can possibly make it. Almost treating that particular area of the insect like a small still life. And then I'll move on to an antennae, and uh, I'll do the same there. So each section has its own lighting setup. And then I, and I bring it all back together like a jigsaw in the end. So they take about three to four weeks sometimes to, to produce. It's, twi- it's labour intensive.
2: To say the least. Please tell us about the insect species you chose to photograph.
4: Um, with this project, I was working with the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. And that's where all the specimens came from. So it was quite a, a luxurious way of working and, and quite indulgent in the fact that I was really only looking at the appearance of the specimens. So not so much the function or habitats, it's more how they looked. Because I was interested in the what is called microsculpture. Microsculpture is the, the term for the lumps and bumps and the hairs and ridges and pits, all the texture that was on the exoskeleton of, a, of an insect. And so I was looking at those. A, with a photographic eye to see how I could light it and, and how I could play with those forms photographically. So I used to go to, to Oxford and I used to work with um, a gentleman called Dr. James Hogan. And I used to tell him the kind of thing I was looking for, whether I was certain colors or certain textures. And he go off into the collection, um, bring me back a, a selection of maybe 20 specimens that were potential candidates and then from there i'd take maybe 5 and take them off to my studio in the in the countryside in the uk in the england and then um spend my time photographing them and then i used to go back every couple of months go and see james again and we'd swap over specimens and it worked like that for about 3 years
2: oh my were you funded was there a grant perhaps that oxford university um provided so you could be paid for this work? No,
4: no, 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 no. No, I mean, I, I've, I used to fit this in around my commercial work. I mean, at the time I was, I was still shooting some commercial advertising work and magazines and portraits. And so my normal day-to-day job was still still going. Um, I had to fit this in in, uh, in the evenings or any spare time, which is why it took three years. I think if I was able to to work on it full-time, it could probably be done in about a year and a half. So yeah, no, there was no funding and, but you know, it's, if you want to change direction in a career, um, and that's certainly what it was, you know, I don't think you should expect people to pay you for that luxury. So I'm fine with it. You know, I, it was, uh, it's, it's, a, it's enabled me to move focus in my photography and career now. Um, and 7 years on i'm still photographing insects which is um, a beautiful place to be
2: your image of the amazonian purple warrior scarab is striking in its use of color purple's my favorite color <laughs> are those scarabs really that deep a purple
4: um they are you know i think the way I photograph things kind of enhance, no, it doesn't enhance the color, but potentially makes it more vibrant because I, I photograph with flashlights. So normally we would observe these, these specimens in ambient light and daylight. And with certain creatures like, like that, for example, the way they make their light, their color is through the refraction of light so basically on their on their bodies, they've got these tiny little microscopic scales that act like prisms. And when the light hits it, it refracts the, the light to, in, to make a certain colour in the spectrum. So when you're photographing something with flashlights, I can position my lights in a way that they, they hit the insect in a direct path. By that, I mean that the light beam goes straight rather than ambient light, which is a bit more diffused and uh, all around us. So in that in that respect it it makes the colours a bit more vibrant potentially than if you're just viewing them with the naked eye. But um but the actual colours themselves are are real. That's how they are in real life.
2: Oh it's stunning. And then the jewel long horned beetle looks like it has tiger stripes. What can you tell us about this yeah. insect?
4: Well I mean it's again it's quite common insects and I, and I have to say, you know, I'm not an entomologist in any, any, any stretch of the form. It's, um, I, I get as fascinated about these insects as, as everyone else. Um, I'm learning all the time about them. Um, you know, even like for that, that one there, when I, when I selected it at the museum in Oxford, and then I did, had no idea at the time that it almost had hair on it. Um, it was only once I got it back to the studio and started photographing it it's under the microscope. That I realize the texture of these creatures, and um every time I start photographing a new one, it always gives me surprises I can never it's 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 amazing how varied and it's just they they amaze me they they, they stun me every time
2: mm. you mentioned that children aren't afraid they don't see these as monstrous or evil in any way. I was wondering if photographing insects over these past six, seven years has changed your perspective on killing bugs. I mean, we know the expression, he wouldn't hurt a fly, but people have no problem swatting at a fly or stepping on a little insect that has made its way into the house
4: yeah. no I mean yeah it certainly changed my view in that respect I've got, I've got far more respect for these creatures when you work with them day in day out on this kind of microscopic level and you you take yourself kind of into their world it seems like you know they're ingenious the way nature has developed them and and the, kind of the, even the mechanics in them you know the wings of a fly or a dragonfly the, the structure of them is is just breathtaking and the idea then that we would just kill this wantonly without even a, a thought sort of upsets me these days there's no need for it I think and the other thing is we, we need to understand as well how important these creatures are for us when I say us, I'm talking about you know for humans in general for our species you know without insects there are there is no human life and it's as simple as that and the the speed at which insect decline is happening is dramatic Uh, it doesn't really get reported which is which is a problem at the moment hopefully there'll be more conversation about it in the future but um but yeah we need to uh, i think we need to have a little bit more respect for these small creatures because they do a hell of a lot of work for us
2: renowned photographer LeVon Biss. You can see his work in Fernbank Museum's Nature Gallery through May 2nd. How do visual art and design contribute to our relationship with music? A new exhibition at Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta, explores that question. The Future Happened is co-curated by Lawrence Azarat, a Grammy Award-winning creative director and author. He joins us now via Zoom. Lawrence, welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you. It's fantastic to be here.
2: What is the meaning of this exhibition's title, The Future Happened?
0: Music, or I should back up and say the music industry, has historically been at the forefront of changes in culture, from politics or cultural movements, and also commerce. The exhibit is really driven, looking at how we can use design and art and creativity to deepen the connections that bond us. Getting back to the title, there's always been groundbreakers in music, in our history, and now, and in our future. And we need to pay attention to those innovations to be able to have deeper and more meaningful connections to music, culture, and each other.
2: So cover art, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of how art and design can strengthen our bond to music. When people shopped for LPs. I mean, part of the joy of thumbing through record albums in a shop was looking at the cover art. And some of that was very sophisticated. Now, with streaming music, what's happened to cover art?
0: As someone in my own practice as a designer, I began over 20 years ago designing cover art at some major record labels, indie record labels. And it's no surprise, everybody started noticing that cover art got smaller and smaller and less and less significant. And the exhibit and the ideas in the exhibit begged the question, what are some of the other entry points through design and creativity that connect us to music? So we wanted to be completely diverse in our definition of this. Yes, we have album covers and traditional graphic design and collage, but we also have dance and film and video and clothing and technological innovation that includes spatial audio and AR and VR and even acts of meditation and entering kind of a sensorial healing space. The idea of expanding our idea of what the word design means to intentional acts of creativity that have a connection to the visual.
2: Ah, I mentioned that you won a Grammy. That was for a Wilco design you did. Do you just cherish that all the more and cling to that box because <laughs> it, it may now be a historic artifact? <laughs>
0: Truth be told, it's actually our second Grammy. Our first Grammy was for the Voyager Golden Record about four years ago. The the, the Wilco Record Grammy happened just last month. After the Voyager Record Grammy, nothing really changes. You 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 don't. Uh, I still put my pants on in the same way. And that's really what the title of the exhibit ties back to, that we... We always have to keep moving forward and we always have to be looking for deep questions our culture faces and find new ways to connect to the things that make us human.
2: You mentioned healing. The show's organized into five different categories. Healing, power, community, tech, timeless, and Atlanta. Would you elaborate on these categories And tell us why this show is divided this way.
0: We're living in a time where traditional classifications of genre tend to pay attention to our divisions more than the way we are connected. Rather than looking at these classifications, we wanted to look at the way elements of music are connected. Many of these artists share commonalities in these categories. We wanted to look at important functions of music to celebrate and uplift now and today. And, and that's the power of music to build community and to bring us together. And as far as categories like technology, it was important not just to be two senior citizens sitting on a bench saying, remember when the albums were hidden in record stores? That was, that was so great but it's important to consistently look forward. We live in an era where we access music through streaming, and that's an incredible invention and utility. But how can we use technical innovation to really excite the mind and inspire and and tell deeper stories and have deeper creative experiences? And we also felt that Atlanta, Atlanta has had a massive cultural impact and it's important to celebrate and share that story. Beyond just looking at hip hop alone, we celebrate this spirit, this creative spirit that has come out from Atlanta, but shared elsewhere as well, of creative iconic figuring out how to do it themselves. You know, we don't need permission from the big gatekeepers in New York or Los Angeles or Hollywood or London that with grit and determination and agency and inspiration. You can do what you want creatively. And Atlanta has given root to a lot of that type of spirit. And you see it in a lot of the cultural iconoclasts that have come from Atlanta.
2: Sajad, one of the exhibitors, won a Grammy this year for his work with Burna Boy. You also won the Grammy for graphic design for Wilco's Ode to Joy album, as we mentioned. Is there any more to say about how the Grammy Awards' recognition of visual artists and designers in such a category as Best Box affirm the relationship between art and music?
0: Graphic design, film and video are a literal extension of the music. It's really wonderful that excellence in that area is is honored and celebrated. When you listen to a song, there's no physical vessel to it. It's this kind of auditory experience that kind of happens in, in time. But the package, the video, the costume that's worn on the stage during the performance, these are the physical extensions of what the art is. It's these kind of visual touch points that give the listener this point of tangibility to identify and connect.
2: As part of this exhibition, audiences are invited on a sonic and walkthrough experience of the original home and studio of Atlanta's Dungeon Family. Would you talk about the Dungeon family and their influence, not only on Southern hip hop, but music and culture overall? Absolutely. The Dungeon
0: family, one of their largest contributions to hip hop is a sense of a spirit and an attitude. This dungeon, so to speak, was the basement of the home of Rico Wade's mother after being forced out of an apartment in Southwest Atlanta because of noise complaints. And that's what came to be known as the famed dungeon, which, of course, the organized noise family, parental advisory, outcast, cool breeze, goodie mob, joy, backbone, witch doctor, big rube, and ultimately the likes of Killer Mike and Future we decided to look at the house itself as the work of art, as design lab. So there's a digital walkthrough that the exhibit is all online. And the viewer, the visitor, can kind of walk through the house and hear unique interviews created just for this exhibit with Sleepy Brown and Ray Murray and Rico Wade talking about the original days in the house. And then we had this kind of sonic landscape of what it might have been like to be in the house. So as you, as you walk through the blueprint, you hear sounds and, and textures that paint a picture mixed with the stories.
2: Lawrence, you cite historical and ongoing challenges the music industry faces regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion how has design contributed to these challenges?
0: There was a very honest stretching of what the definition of design was and a consistent question of who we celebrate and why. Design is, is a vehicle to understand culture and to experience culture. That does not and should not be defined by a white European standard. We have in the exhibit, Lemmy Geraku, who created the album covers for the Nigerian great Fela Kuti. Having a more vibrant mosaic and texture of our stories and our graphic design and our creative output enriches everybody.
2: Yes. The exhibition includes a few different interactive components, including zine workshops for adults and children. Would you talk about the history and importance of zine culture?
0: First of all, we wanted to give a access point for young adults and creatively curious people And zines were basically handmade magazines, had a real big start in the early punk movements, which we have some great examples from the late 1970s, early 80s, from the origins of the punk scene in Detroit. It was a way for people to identify with each other. Not only you're not alone, but social issues or personal issues are shared with others in your community. It was nice because the zine itself had a very raw and tactile and emphatic sensibility to its look and feel. But it was, it was meant to be made down and dirty and cut by hand and Xeroxed and reproduced by hand. And, and they were these kind of very precious little artifacts, honest artifacts, authentic artifacts made by hand in this particular zine room or workshop of the online exhibit we highlight two exceptional zine makers today young 16 year old designers behind a publication called that's interesting and it's about sharing ideas and emotions and feeling and on its most fundamental that that's what design is
2: Lawrence Azerod co-curated the virtual exhibition, The Future Happened, Designing the Future of Music, on view now from Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta. Their first virtual curator's talk will be Saturday at 3 p.m. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., harpist and activist Angelica Hairston will tell us about the upcoming Rhythm of the Roots virtual concert, honoring BIPOC artists in and outside the concert hall. City Lights producer is Summer Evans, Shelley Canavia is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reutz's I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.